word that we often talk about in biblical studies is this word hermeneutics. So the word itself, actually, it comes from the Greek god, Hermes. Now, Hermes was the, the god who was basically the messenger of the gods. He's the one who effectively came and interpreted for the people what it is that the gods want um, or, or what the gods are thinking. And so we sort of use this word hermeneutics in the same way. It's this idea of, of how we actually interpret the Bible. So how do we read it? But then more importantly, how do we apply it? And it sounds like a pretty straightforward process. Well, you know, I just read the Bible and I do what it says. And this tends to be the approach that your average Christian will take. I've got a Bible. This is the Word of God. Um, you know, and we believe Scripture is divinely inspired. We believe that it's an eternal truth that um, that God has inspired for us to live by. Um, you know, in cruder terms, it's kind of God's rule book for life. It's the it's the uh, the thing by which we as Christians. Um, take to be our guide, take to be the way that we need to to live our lives. And so we read it, we study it, and we use it to inform our decisions. We use it to inform our, our moral, our ethical values, um, ultimately to inform the way that we live our lives. And so that's that's basically how we, we take this approach. This is basically what we, we understand. We, don't, we, we may not have even heard of hermeneutics before, but it's something that we all do. We all interpret the Bible and we all apply it. And so all of that's fine, all of that's perfectly normal. Um, but it, it raises the question then of how do we actually interpret the Bible? Um, you know, by what mechanisms do we use? Now, again, it's, this is one of those things that we do unconsciously. You know, we, we read the Bible, um, but we are interpreting the Bible um, based on whatever framework it is that we um, that we apply to it, uh, you know. Take for example, you know, if I if I'm reading a, a story to my kids of an evening, um, it's it's fictional stuff. You know, you, they they read. You know, the, the older kids are certainly into Harry Potter, for example. Um, and so, if we're reading Harry Potter, we're not reading it as a true story. It's it's not a a biography of um, of an actual kid named Harry Potter who went to Hogwarts school and who was actually a magician and and all of this. It's fiction. It's it's fiction written for for older children. And so you understand that about it when you read it. You don't read it as being a true story that, and certainly not one that is written to inform. Um, our own ethics, or it's not sort of an instruction book for my kids to, um, you know, to learn to be magicians. It's a story. And so we understand it that way. And so we read it um, as a form of entertainment. We, we it's an, it, it is an entertaining story. And so we read it as such. And so we do that instinctively because we know that it's a fictional story. We know it's not true. Instead, we don't read it as being true. So with the Bible, if we come to the Bible with an understanding that it is timeless truth, that is inspired truth from God himself, you, that's a very different approach to reading it as though it's another Harry Potter. We read it as being the thing by which we have to live and the thing that actually has to inform all of our life's decisions. Uh, and so we take it very seriously in that way. 
So the question becomes again, how do we actually approach it? How do we actually handle scripture? And I guess the point that I'm getting to here is, um, you know, what we, what we'll, we'll, I guess what we'll do in more simplistic terms is just to say, well, the Bible clearly says. We just pick the Bible up and we just read it, you know, whatever, wherever we find ourselves in it, whether it be anywhere from between Genesis and Revelation, we just read it um, as straightforward black and white instructions for literally what we have to do. But if you've been listening to this podcast, I think what you're starting to notice is that sometimes it's not so straightforward, that the way that the thing, certain things that Scripture talks about is well everything that scripture talks about is firstly informed by its own context it's informed by uh, the situation in which it was written and this is very important you know i've talked previously about women teaching yeah and so there's passages that seem to clearly indicate that women have to be silent in the church or at home or that women aren't allowed to teach men but on a closer reading of it put back into its context, we realize that actually it's not so clear. It's not quite saying that as some timeless universal truth that actually it applied certainly to maybe to its context in a particular way, but it's not something that needs to be applied in today's world, in today's church. Now that's very important when it comes to something really important as women teaching, women doing ministry, um, because read simplistically, it's saying women can never teach a man ever in any time in any place based on that verse but when you read the verse again you realize actually it's not actually talking about that at all it's saying it to a particular group of women who were doing it in a particular way well all of that to say that's that's sort of the whole point of what what i'm trying to do here with this with this podcast what i'm trying to do here is to just to make us sort of take a step back and recognize the historical context of the new testament and realize that with a lot of these very important passages um it's not so simple black and white well the bible says this therefore we do it but actually we, it needs to be read more closely within what was actually going on and then from that realizing well then how we apply that is may be very different to how um, it, to, to the simple, well, it says this, so this is what we must do. So that's what we're going to do for this couple of weeks. Um, we're going to come to some passages uh, this uh, next week, but I want to sort of lay the groundwork for them this week. And very important passages uh, within 1 Corinthians 7, which talk about issues of marriage and sex, and particularly the issue of divorce. Um, so I want to sort of get to that next week, and but I want to before we get there, I want to get go through again this sort of process of asking the question of what was actually going on in the in the time, what was actually happening in Corinth in the first century that was informing the behavior of the Corinthians and certainly informing Paul's response. And so from that sort of reapproach these passages, and so hopefully recognize that at the very least. It's not so black and white. It's not so, well, the Bible says, and so therefore, um, there's actually a bit more nuance to that. And that, again, it's, it's an important process for us to do, especially when it comes to these really essential life passages like these ones that we're going to look at next week um, that, that really have significant consequences when they're read wrong, when they're actually applied incorrectly. And so that's sort of some some way of introduction to where we're going with all of this. Now I should say sort of one more 
I guess, warning about this episode. Um, so what we're going to do this week is we're actually going to look at uh, ancient marriage, which we've sort of covered before, but I want to go a bit deeper into that and look at ancient sexuality. Um, and I want to look at sort of the way that sex was understood um, and practice. Now, the way that sex has been practiced has been the same for all animals since the beginning of time. I, I know you get that, but the attitude towards sex. And so we're kind of going to go pretty deep into this and it's going to get pretty intense. So um, I'm just sort of saying as a bit of a warning, um, you know, I'll use euphemistic language wherever possible, but we're going to go pretty into it. Um, so just as a bit of a warning, certainly if there might be kids listening, maybe this isn't the podcast for them. This is this certainly isn't the episode for them. Um, if that's the situation you find yourself in, maybe listen to this one later on when the kids aren't around. Okay. So that's just a bit of a, bit of a warning up front. Um, for just for this week, we're going to go, we're going to go a little bit out there. Um, so anyway, you do with that as you need to. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of what we're going to go to this week. So let's look, let's get into it. So as mentioned in a previous episode, we've already talked uh, quite a bit about ancient marriage. Um, we've sort of gone there more from the perspective of the wife. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the role of women in the ancient world. But what we're talking about in sort of this series, or it's sort of centering a bit more around the role of the man, um, the via bonus, as we've been talking about. Uh, and so I want to look at his role within the family. Now, again, we've talked about this already, but the family in the ancient world is the central unit of society. It is the primary unit of um, of social organization. Um, cities were seen as being just a place in that is made up of smaller cells like a body and the cells are the family. There's no individual. It's not a city is full of individual citizens, all autonomous beings that have their own whatever. No, it's the, the smaller unit is the family. Um, and so really the way that a family is constructed is something like a mini state. Uh, the, you know, the, the head of the house is like the emperor of Rome. And so the emperor himself styles himself as the father of Rome. Caesar is the the father. Um, he's the great patron, the great provider, the father of, of the Roman Empire. And he st- sort of styles himself that way because he recognizes that's the most important um, person of authority within within that world. And so he's he's the father of all of the fathers. And so, so family is absolutely important. And what that means is that um, there's certain expectations. When you're part of a family, um, you are obligated to that family. Your, that family is your, um, your means of support. It's the business. Uh, it's your place where you, uh, it's your point of identity. Um, you are who you are because you're from that family. And so the, the, whatever honor or shame is attached to that family is also attached to you because you're part of it. You, you've contributed towards whatever the, uh, the perception of that family might be. Uh, and so things like, you know, it's, it's absolutely forbidden to act against one another in a court, for example. Um, you know, you, do, you just don't take the other family members to court. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but if it does, it's the highest form of shame. You know, the, the minute you do that, that's it. You've made a declaration completely against your family. There's, there's no coming back from that. So you, you'll never, ever, ever take a family member to court. You know, you talk about murder, the worst 
possible form of murder that there is is patricide you know killing your father it's it's absolutely there is there is nothing worse than than to do something like that or even fratricide killing your brother it, you just you just don't do that it's, it's the worst possible thing that can happen and so all of the family members are are obligated to the to the company to to, to the organization, um, to provide for it, to work for it, to contribute back towards it. Uh, and so whatever success that the family has, whatever honor the family receives is received by the recipient, uh, by, by each of the members. So at the head of all of that, of course, is the paterfamilias, the head of the family. He's the father of the family. Um, and so he's, he's the CEO of this company and we'll, we'll come to him in a moment. So what about marriage then? Um, how does that work? Well, so we've talked again, we've talked a bit about marriage itself from the, from the point of view of the wife. Um, marriage, in, it's certainly in an ancient Roman marriage, there's no formal procedure for it. Uh, there's no, um, you know, you don't go to the go to some church because they didn't have them anyway, or you don't go down to the local courthouse and sign documents and you're formally registered as being married. Marriage is just the cohabitation of two eligible partners, right? Two people say that we get, we've agreed to live together, then they're married. That's it. It's just an agreement. It really is what we would call today a de facto relationship. You just you you basically just move in together, and that's it. That's that's the commitment that you've made to the other person, and that becomes your husband or your wife. Now, this is always going to be arranged by the parents. It's not a decision generally that gets made by the individual parties. Typically, marriages are arranged in this society. And so, again, but it's only as formal as the agreement or, or the uh, consent, really, that each has made to be in that relationship. Now, the only real concern, the only sort of formal concern you might have where there might be some contracts made is in relation to property. Um, so particularly when the wife comes with, a, she, she'll bring a dowry to the marriage. Um, that's sort of her personal property. And, and it's really there to, as a fallback for her, if she ever loses a husband and she's got no father to return to, that dowry is really there to look up for her to be, or to look after her. So the only real concern about any, if, if there are any contracts that are made, it really only is only going to relate to property. Um, you know, who owns what in this, um, in this organization, in this relationship, um, so that if if and when it does end, um, we know what to do with all of the stuff. We've we've come into it's you know basically like a prenuptial sort of agreement. That's about the only real concern you have, and for perhaps for, for any children or anything like that. But otherwise, that's the you know, that's about as formal as it's ever going to get. Um, and again, it really just relates to um, to the property and to ownership. So as I say, it's it's generally arranged by parents, and you know we've talked a lot about the fact that girls are typically typically going to be married very young. They're going to be married in the, in what we would call their their teenage years. Now, keeping in mind that there's no such thing as a teenager in the ancient world, right? You don't have this concept of the teenager. We talk about that today. It's a standard thing. You know, we talk about the teenage years. That wasn't a thing in the ancient world. That's a new idea really as of the 20th century where we designate that period between, what, say 12, 13 up until maybe 20 where you are 
in these teenage years. And we recognize that there's a, there's a time of development that's happening there that's different from, you know, adolescence prior to, prior to puberty and certainly when you're in your 20s and 30s. Um, so that's all very new for us. Well, that's very typical for us, but that's, that's also very new. Um, you, you, you become an adult when you go through puberty in, in any other culture. So a girl between the ages of 12 and 15 is now eligible to be married. Now, boys are going to get married later on, so they're typically in their 20s when they get married, and we've looked at the reasons for that before, but usually the boy's going through his um, his education or going through his military service, doing various things. He's, he's going to get married later on, which means that your typical marriage is going to be between a girl in her teens, 12 to 15, and a boy in his sort of early 20s um, or thereabouts, which means that by default, Already, he's going to be older than her by quite quite a few years. Um, he's what we would call an adult, and she's what we would call a young teenager. Um, now, of course, that, that sort of we just bristle at that idea. Like it's just it's a troubling idea for us. But in a world where the average life expectancy is thirty five years old, it's it's a bit more. Well, it's understandable at the very least because you know it, it, when you're in your teenage years statistically speaking, you're having your midlife crisis by, by that point because everybody lives uh, or dies at such a young age. Uh, so that's typically where your age works. Um, and again, the idea of marriage is never about love. This is a really important distinction that we have to make. Um, it's not boy meets girl. Um, they fall in love. They date. They you know go to the movies together and then after years, they decide that they want to get married and have children. And it's, it's, it's none of those sorts of ideas. It's just, it's never what it's about. Marriage is always about um, concordia. It's about harmony. The goal of marriage is always harmony. It's never about, you know, falling in love and falling more and more in love and, and all of these every year. It's, no, it's about working together. The marriage is a business. The marriage is... Um, it's a it's an organization. It's working together for a common good, which is survival and protection of the family and all of the members that are attached to the family. So it's work. It's it's a business partnership, and like any business partnership, if you enter into a business partnership with somebody, a friend of yours, um, you know, you're not that partnership isn't contingent on whether or not you love each other. Um, that would just be awkward. It's not nothing to do with that. It's about whether you can work together um, for the common interests, work together for each other's interests and to have each other's back. Uh, so it's, it's about concordia. It's about uh, harmony working together in that way. So what, what, where this kind of gets symbolized is in imagery of the marriage of, of, a, of a husband and wife where they've got the right hands clasped um, so this is called dextrarum yunctio, so the clasping of the right hands. And it's this idea of that, again, that we're, we're working together, we're working together in harmony towards the common good. Um, and the ultimate um, purpose then, the function of marriage, is to produce children. Children are what are required in order to carry on the family. Children are workers in the family, and they're also our retirement plan. If we don't have children, then we don't have a future. Children are required in order for us, in order to look after us when we're too old to work. And so we need to have children in order to do that. But also there's just this, 
general priority in these societies to have children because there's a recognition that if we don't replace ourselves, then the whole population goes away. Um, there's we, we all die. And so we need to have children. We need to have um, lots of children because most of them are going to, most of the children are going to die as well. You need to have at least six babies in the ancient world in order to have um, to, to try to hope for two adult children because so many children are going to die in infancy. So you need to be making lots of children in order to even have adults to replace you and to look after you in the first place. And so the marriage then is, again, if it's not a formal process that, as we talked about, then it's much more, it's much more of a loose arrangement. It, it is really much more like what we would call a de facto relationship. Um, and it's, it's what we call a free marriage. What that means is that each of the mem- each of the parties are, are still somewhat independent. It is, you know, it's really is like a business partnership where the two are having sex. Uh, and, and they're living together. It's, pre, it's kind of what we're we're dealing with here. And so what that means is that, especially for her, when she comes to the marriage, she whatever property she brings is um, it, it remains hers. That's that's her property. Her dowry is her property, and that now his responsibility as the husband is to look after it, to protect it, but. If ever they divorce, it automatically automatically goes back to her. That's her property. Now, whilst ever it's in his house, he can still claim it as part of his property value. So if she, and, and particularly if she's an elite girl, um, this is going to be valuable for him. She He might have political aspirations. He wants to become a senator. And so in order to do that, he needs to be worth a million sesterces, as we've been talking about. Well, one of the things that he would do um, if he hasn't got that money, is that he would find a woman who does, who, um, you know, she can never become the politician because she's a woman, but she's worth a lot of money. And so that can count towards his property value so that he can apply or he can run for that office. And that actually happened. Um, Cicero was a very famous Roman senator, a very famous Roman orator. Um, and he was he was an outsider from Rome. He sort of he, he came to Rome looking to make a name for himself and to climb the cursus honorum, um, but he didn't have the money. He came from wealthy parents, but he certainly didn't have enough the property qualifications to become a senator. And so he married a woman who actually did a very wealthy woman, and so the she was much much richer than he was. But she, and so she wanted to be married to somebody who was politically powerful. She wanted to be amongst the top families in Rome. And so in order to do that, she needed to marry somebody who was going to get there. Um, and so she married him because she can sort of ride his coattails into the fame that he was going to bring in, and the, the honor that he was going to have. And he needed the money. And so it was a very convenient arrangement that was brought about. Now, it was never a marriage of love. And that's a very clear from the stories about it, it produced children. They had a they had a daughter and a son, and they were you know that was all wonderful. And he certainly loved his children, but his relationship with her and hers with him was very very much like a business partnership, uh, and so that that was just a convenient arrangement that the, that the two of them had. So the idea is that it's free. She she but she always owned that property, and it kind of it gave her a bit of leverage over him because if ever he was. Um, you know, doing something that was upsetting her or, you know, if he wasn't quite treating her the way that uh, that she wanted, well, she always had that threat over him, which is I could leave 
And if I leave, you lose your property qualification. And anyway, so part, in fact, part of his goal in the marriage was to get enough wealth for himself, his own, his own personal wealth, so that he had his own, he had the property qualification to be the senator so that he didn't need her anymore. And that was kind of one of his ambitions through this. So it all sounds very messed up. It all sounds like a marriage of convenience, which is literally what it was. Um, and it led to a pretty messy sort of story as it went along. But the point being that when they come to the marriage, whatever property each other brings, um, that remains their own property. And now when it comes to the children, they always remain his property. So in any marriage, he always has the children because they were produced in his house. So that that becomes his um, that becomes his property. So marriage then is, a, is a, it's a free marriage, um, and it is yeah again each of the each of the parties brings their own stuff to it. All right, so that's the practical element of marriage. There was um, it, it's a very pragmatic affair, a very pragmatic process. Um, it's a relationship for practical ends. Um, much more like a business relationship. And so there are certain expectations then that, that go along with that. So in, in that sense, we think about marriage as a business. Well, that, that means then that everyone has a role to play. Um, it's, it's not about your, you know, what, what am I individually gaining from this? You know, we want to be mute, this sort of mutual love and mutual building each other up and, and an emotional sort of connection. It's really nothing to do with that at all. It's, it's, it's practical. It's a functional thing. Um, and because it's a business, everyone has to play their part. Everyone has to contribute to the success of the family because that is our means of support. That's our livelihood and, and all of this. So again, we've talked about women a lot and wives already a lot. So you can look at the previous episodes where we go into a lot of depth about that, but only just sort of by way of reminder, if the husband is the CEO of the company, then that means that she's the COO. She's the chief operations officer. Now remember that the house itself is the business. So whatever happens in the house is the business. The the family is the business. The and the the, the house is the office. So she runs the office. She runs the. She looks after the employees, which is the children, the slaves, anybody attached to the family that works in the family. She takes care of all of that. Um, so just, just a little side note, I've, my wife and I have just started watching that series Yellowstone. I don't know if you've seen that, um, but it's such a fantastic image of what we're talking about here, where you've got the patriarch and the children are all sort of working in the family business. And it's really about, it's about him. He's, he's the head of the family and everybody's working for his interests. Um, and so he's very politically active. Uh, you know, the family business rides or falls on his ability to be able to, to be a powerful person within the city that, that, that he's part of and within the state of Montana, which is where the story is set. Uh, and so all of the children are sort of working towards that because they're going, they're going to inherit the family business. And this is a family business that's been in there for generations and generations. And just the whole, I don't know if it's a show you've seen, it's, I mean, it's a very good show from what we've seen so far, but it gives you this real sort of sense of, um, you know, the honor and the dignity of the family name and everybody there to, to, to it's not even about the individual, it's about the name. It's about the family. It's all about um, making sure that the family itself is protected because the family is the business. The family is the legacy. So it's a really good sort of modern um, sort of uh, take or modern um, picture of what was going on in these Roman families, because this picture is very common. It's just really how things have always been in, in, in societies everywhere. 
So her role then is that she runs the house. She looks after all of the members. And what that means is that she's doing the domestic chores. She's doing all of the food preparations, right? She's cleaning. She's making the clothes, not just ironing the clothes because they didn't have irons, but or washing the clothes, but she's literally making the clothes. Um, you know, you don't go down to the shop and buy, you know, new pants for the kids or something because they didn't have pants, but, you know, you make all that stuff. That's what you, you know, you every part of the process is something you have to know how to do. And, of course, she bears and raises the children. She has to be the one to do the nursing because there's no, well, there's no daycare. Um, if she has a child, then she has to feed that baby. Now, a very wealthy woman might be able to afford to get a, a, a wet maid, um, so, oh, sorry, a wet nurse. So literally just somebody to breastfeed the children. But for most women, that's her job because she's the one with the breasts. So she actually has to raise the children and do all of that responsibility. So she runs the family business. She looks after all of its members. Now there are, again, there's some independently wealthy women, um, who have their own means. They can come to the marriage and they've got a large dowry and they've got their own enough of their own support to even not even necessarily be married. They don't even have to be married because they can, they've got enough to be able to, to live without a husband. But for the most part, women need to be married because they need somebody to replace their father. They're going to be having children and that's what they're going to be doing. And they, they need a husband who's going to, um, to be able to look after them and, and to have a new household to replace the one that they've just left. So very standard sort of picture there. Um, now, even if, so, you know, you get a few examples of women who are independent and, and can, can live without a husband, but your typical woman is going to be honored for being married and for maintaining these typical female roles. Yeah, so all of the things that I've just talked about, that's, that's what brings honor for a woman. Um, you know, as much as the marriage is about, it's a pragmatic thing, it's about the business, there is honor attached to it. The honor is attached to doing the duties that are required of, of being a woman. And so there's an expectation around, well, what is a woman? What does it mean to be a woman? What is the, the ideal or the virtue of being womanly? Well, this is what it looks like. And we've talked a bit already about this idea of virtue. And you know, the, the word virtue comes from the Latin virtus, which ultimately means a man, because a man is a via. So to be virtuous is to be manly. But there was an idea attached to women, which was their idea of virtue. What is it to be virtuous as a female? Well, it's this, it's this picture we've just described here. So, so long as she's doing that, she's seen to be a virtuous woman. So there's that sort of, that, that's attached to her. That's what it means to be a woman, to be a wife, in this time, but we're not talking about the women now. We're talking more about the men in this particular, uh, well, at least in this episode. And so I want to sort of focus on on him. What does he look like in this marriage? What is the, the responsibility and the role that he has within the marriage? Well, to be a man is to be a virtus, is to have virtus, is to have virtue. And so to be a virtuous man means to be dominant, it means to be the one in charge. Um, so the whole idea of climbing the social ladder or climbing the, the ladder of power is because you want to express or exercise your dominance. You want to be on top. You have to be the absolute kingpin of your town or your organization or society, wherever it is. In a competitive world, the, way, the most virtuous person is the one who's on top, the one who is winning, the one who is uh, at the top of the pile. That's what it means to be virtuous. So you're in charge. 
it's not just um, it's it's not just necessarily um, a role that you play, but it's attached to your very honor. The, an honorable man is a person who isn't just on top, but is in control. All right, there's he he calls the shots. Like nothing, nothing gets around him, or or, or there's nothing that, that sort of dominates him. He's the one who's who's on top of all the circumstances. And that's especially true in the family. This is where he really expresses his virtue is within the context of the family. It's not just that it's, well, that's my wife and that's my children, but that's my business and that's, that's, my, um, that's my domain. I'm the emperor of that particular organization and that particular household. And so he's the CEO. And so he demonstrates his virtue by the way that he carries himself as the, the head of the company, as the boss of the company. He, he, his virtue is attached to his ability to keep everything under control. Now, I used the example last week with when we talked about honor and shame, a man who he, whose wife is committing adultery, who's cheating on him, it's not, um, it, it, it's not a shameful thing. It's, it's not tragic for him in the sense that, oh, my wife broke my heart. I trusted her and she went off with another man. It's nothing to do with that. It's the perception that he can't keep his family in order. He, he can't keep his wife under control. She's going off doing these things um, that is an obviously disgraceful behavior. That's on him. That's a bad reflection on him. And so that cuts him down a few pegs in relation to his virtue, in, in relation to his manliness. So the household is where he demonstrates his superiority. So how big it is, how opulent it is, how well decorated, how wealthy it is. Um, the, the number, not just the number, the 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 number of members. So you've got the wife and the children, but the slaves and any and the the clients and the freedmen or anyone who's is attached to the family, anyone who de- is dependent on him, kind of like any sort of business, the the number of employees is an indication of that family's wealth and of that family's power. So all of that reflects back to him, and it's his role to look after it. It's his role to be able to provide for that. The more people that he can be seen to be providing for is an automatic indication of his wealth. He doesn't have to tell you, you know, how much money does he have in the bank or how much property does he own? You may never know that, but it's fairly obvious that a person is a wealthy person when they're looking after so many people. So that's that's a sign to everybody else of not just his wealth, but also his generosity. Look how many people that I'm taking care of, how many people are dependent on me. And then all those, all of those people who are dependent on him are also reflecting his power. Look how many people he has power over, how many people he's dominant over. So all of this, again, it, it all just comes back to his, to, to give you a, to um, be an expression of his power, of, 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 of the, the amount of dominion that he has over, over people. Now, one element of this that is very different to, um, to certainly to a modern setting is that at least in the Roman marriage or in, in a Roman family, the, the, the paterfamilias has total authority over the, the, the children up until he dies. Anyone attached to that family, so long as he's still alive, he has total um, power over them, total authority over them. And so, you know, even if, if you're 40 years old and you were the emperor of Rome, if your father is still alive, he still has power over your wealth. You actually don't own anything 
independently of him. Whatever wealth you have is his. You might you might share it, you might be able to use it, but it doesn't belong to you. You actually don't own anything. He's got total control over everybody. No one actually owns anything in their own right. And he has the total power of life and death. He is the the, the sort of the judge, jury, and executioner of the family members. Uh, and so th- this power is total. It's absolute over all of the members. The, in fact, the only way that a child can be separated or, or released from his power is to actually be legally released from his authority, to actually no longer be his child. Now, it, sometimes this would happen so that a, a son could be adopted into another family. We talk about adoption um, as being something when you adopt a baby. You never adopt babies in the ancient world because babies, we don't know how they're going to turn out. That's just not something that happens. What you do is you adopt adult children who uh, show the potential to be maybe better sons than your own, or maybe you don't have sons, and so you want to have somebody that can inherit your goods or, or, or your property, and so you'll adopt somebody. And that's a convenient thing for another father who might have several sons who can't give his inheritance to all of the sons but only to the oldest ones, but he wants his other sons to have that opportunity. So he will release them from his authority and then literally sign them over to the authority of another father so that they can become uh, um, heirs to that wealth and to that to that property. So adoption, it's a very different sort of thing to, um, to what we might think about today, but only to say that his power over his children is absolute. Now you think, oh, well, that's, you know, you, you might be my age in your forties. Now my father isn't with us anymore. He, he died nearly 10 years ago, but um, you think about, you know, as older people, maybe if you've got, you know, um, a spouse and children to, you imagine that your father who may still be alive is in over your life. Um, that sounds a bit strange or you know, how does it, how would that work today? Well, keeping in mind that everybody dies much younger in the ancient world. So take women, for example, um, a young woman would very often in a lot of cases not have a, a living father. So what it would look like in reality is for your typical 15 year old girl, about 40, 46% of 15 year olds would have no father. Uh, no living father. About 59% of 20-year-olds would have no father. And about 70% 70 of 25-year-olds, again, would have no father. So you don't, as adults, even young adults, you generally don't have a living father because, again, everybody dies much younger. Um, And so this idea of the father having total control over the kids is true, um, but it doesn't extend to much into their life because, again, the father's going to be dead when you're still fairly young. You know, there's no idea of 50 and 60-year-olds having living parents. And and really what it means actually is that you don't even really have grandparents. That's just not something you really ever see because by the time she's having her children and they're, they're starting to grow up, um, again, the father, the, their grandfather has been dead for a very long time. So at any rate, um, he's got total control. And what that means then is that he's got, he really becomes the court. Uh, so whatever, um, if you don't, you don't need police in the ancient world. I've talked about this already. You just don't need police in the Roman world because you've got fathers to do that. And it's on his honor to make sure that the family members are doing the right thing, that are actually behaving in honorable ways because their honor is on the line and honor is more important than anything else. Uh, And so if there's children in the family that are misbehaving or if a wife is misbehaving, then 
it's on him. It's his responsibility to deal with that because the honor of the family is, is at stake here. And so what would happen would be that if, um, for example, in the case of adultery, if a, if a wife was found in adultery, then the paterfamilias would call together the other men in the family and they would hold court and they would determine her guilt and then punish her accordingly or punish the children accordingly, depending on what the situation was. And if he didn't, then that's a disgrace to him. And that's, again, that's a fate worse than death. So you're going to do it. You're going to make sure that, um, that we're going to deal with these problems. And then for the children, it's their responsibility to uphold his honor for any sons to emulate their father, to walk in his footsteps, to carry on the family name and the family legacy and, and all of this. So the power of the father is absolute. This is the point. And his use of that, the way that he carries that is a reflection of his honor and it's a reflection of his virtue because again virtue is his ability to dominate to be able to be be in control of the circumstances all right so we've we have covered some of that before but hopefully just to give some clarity now to what we're about to talk about this idea of the good man the via bonus as being the one who is dominant well where does that express itself most prominently well, you may not be surprised to realize that where that really expresses itself is in the practice of sex. And that's what we're going to come to after the break. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which is really going to help to spread it further. You might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media. You can find these in the, the link for these in the, in the show notes. And you might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through that same link. But otherwise, back to the show. All right, so the via is, has virtus. He's got virtue. Um, and his virtue is expressed in his dominance. It's expressed in his power, um, in his ability to, to rule and to dominate everybody around them. The way that that is primarily expressed is through sex. And so another characteristic of the via, of the, of the via bonus, of this dominant man, is that he's virile. Now, if you ever wondered where that word came from, there it is, virile. The via in virile comes from a man. It's been manly. Manliness is domination. Manliness is that. Uh, and so he, the, the good man, the virile, virtuous man, is the embodiment of what all men should strive to be. This is what every man wants to become like. This is what is emulated in this. Uh, and so this dominion, again, this expresses itself in military dominance, um, in just this ability to fight and to endure in battle, bravery in the face of death, just, you know, his ability to control his fears, um, his ability to control his desires and passions. This is what makes you masculine. Your, abil your, 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 your ability to control yourself, your ability, your level of self-control, but also your ability to control others. So that's what makes you the man. It's, it's all about dominance. It's all about power. And so then, again, the way that this expresses itself is through your sexuality. Um, you know, the via, he, he's not just a biological male. He's a man. He's a real man. Um, he's a manly man. 
right? He's the he's the the alpha male. He's the macho man. This is what he is. And again, how that expresses itself. This how you um, dominate is that you're the one who penetrates. Now, I said to you, this is where it's going to get a bit graphic. Um, there's, there's just no other way to to deal with this material. So um, bear with me as we sort of talk about this. But the the via, the, the via bonus, the, the, the virtuous man, is the one who penetrates. He dominates because he's the one who does the penetration. Now, conversely, this is why a woman can never be virtuous. This is why a woman can never be powerful because she's biologically incapable of penetrating. It's just, it's not something that she has the capacity to do. And so by virtue of that, she's always going to be passive. She's always going to be the recipient in any any, any sexual encounter. So automatically she is eliminated from the ability to be truly virtuous and be, to be a true leader because she doesn't have that, literally she doesn't have a penis, whereas the man does. And so by virtue of that, he has the capacity to be the dominant one, to be the, the, the most powerful one. It's only then a question of what does he do with it? Does he dominate or like a woman, is he passive? Um, is, is he the passive recipient in any, any sexual encounter? So when we talk about sex then in the ancient world, sex is understood always in the category of power. We think about sex as, you know, procreation or for, you know, marital intimacy or, or whatever. That's not any, they, 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 those are true categories, but that's not the priority of sex in the ancient world. Sex, certainly in the Roman world, is attached to power. And so how sex is performed and practiced is a, it's a power play. Um, the one who dominates is the powerful one. He's the one in charge. And the one who is the recipient, the passive one, is the one who is being subjugated. Now, the person who is in the passive position um, is always going to be a woman and is sometimes going to be a man because sex is not... Um, the, you know, this idea of, we talk about heterosexuality, where you're exclusively only attracted or only have sex with somebody of the opposite sex... That's not a thing, particularly for men. It's not a thing in the ancient world. Um, men will have sex with both men and women. That's, that's all very, very standard. Um, it's, and so it's never about what your preference is, whether you, you know, just want to be with women or just want to be with men. You're always going to be with both in some way or another. The only question is, are you the active one or you're the passive one in the, account, in the encounter? So you, you, like a normal sort of a normative sexual experience then it's portrayed less as a, a loving intercourse between partners and it's more of a series of penetrative encounters um it's it's just a again it's just a, a it's a series of actions and the question always being and it could be with anyone it could for for a man it could be with another man it could be with another woman it could be with a young boy with a slave with a prostitute irrespective of who it's with the question always is who was on top? Who was the one doing the penetrating? That was the chief concern. Um, the only sort of mitigation to that is the ability to exercise self-control. It's one to exercise power, but if you're having sex with 
everything all the time and the sex seems to be controlling you, then you've become the passive one. You're not in control of yourself. You might be the one penetrating all the time, but if you're having to penetrate all the time because you're just addicted to sex, well, then you've got an addiction. And that's another problem that you're actually now passive to the sex itself. So that it's about control. It's about power and it's about having that self-control over the circumstances. Now, where this is kind of reflected, I, I've said before in previous episodes that um, there's a God attached to absolutely everything, right? There's gods for absolutely everything. Well, this is true very much for sex. There was a God for sex and specifically for the, for the sort of male dominance that we're talking about here. Now, the God is called the God Priapus, P-R-I-A-P-U-S. Um, I dare you to Google it, do an image search. You'll see what I mean about this. But what is how he's typically portrayed is, is like a little gnome. And he's in one hand, he's carrying a sickle. And what is characteristic of him is a giant erect penis. He's just like a penis in some cases as big as the creature himself. I and mean, if you've traveled to, you know, if you've traveled overseas, you know, you see these old souvenirs you can buy of in the souvenir shops. And you'll find in a lot of these souvenir shops a lot of penises. Um, in various forms and creatures with little penises. The, the picture of a penis was a very common image that you have. I mean, you, you, find, you would have Roman houses with an erect penis stuck above the top of the house, right? It's Because there's no sort of sense of this Western idea of modesty. No, the penis is a very important piece of imagery because it represents power. It's how you demonstrate power. It's how you express it, express that power. And so this God... Priapus, what we'll typically find would be a little figure of him kept in the garden and with this big erect penis. And the idea is it's a, it's a warning to potential thieves to say, if you come in here and try to steal from us, I'm going to use this on you. Um, and so he's this creature that is, uh, he's got this erection at all times and he's always ready to go. He's always dominant. Um, he he's He's this God who is... Um, just this full expression of Roman manliness, of this Roman machoism. And he kind of, so he kind of becomes the symbol. He kind of becomes the patron god of Roman manliness. Um, he's the expression, the fullest expression of what every Roman man wants to be, which is this big, powerful, sexually dominant person. Um, this, this sexually dominant man. So that's kind of a... Um, sort of a, that's sort of the framework then that we have to understand sex within, certainly within the context of, of the Roman man. Now, the Roman man, um, when it comes to his sexual preferences, well, that can, that's, that can be basically everything. Um, the typical Roman man would desire, well, women, true, but also young women and young boys. Um, the younger, the better. Um, because, you know, an older person is just an older person, but they, they, so they're typically going to want somebody younger. And one of the sort of, they, what they particularly enjoyed was young boys sort of around the ages of 12 to 14, sort of in that prepubescent, sort of that flower of their youth stage. Um, you know, just, just as their voices are starting to break, as they're starting to maybe get a bit of hair in their chest, not when they're, you know, big men, but when they're young men that can be dominated and young men that are, are beautiful, that are elegant, that are sexy and attractive. 
Um, and so it's very common for a for a man to go and buy a young boy as a slave and, and have these young boys around for sexual pleasure. That's in fact, you can pay a lot of money for that sort of slave because that's really what a key object of your desire is is to have this young boy. Um, in fact, you could be you know, something you boast about to your friends. Look at this this young boy here. I paid a fortune for him, but I mean, how lovely is he? You know, it's like this is sort of an object of envy for all of your friends. So then, in terms of what you want to have sex with, it could be anything, and and your your desires will will vary. Again, the point always being so long as you dominate whatever it is that you're having sex with. Now, for women, just as a sort of a side note, women obviously have sex, but there's um, for a woman, the expectation of sex was that for her, it's about procreation. Really, that's the only time that she will ever have sex is when she's married and she's um, she's been impregnated by her husband to make more children. For her, that's really all sex is ever going to look like. And now, now what I'm talking about here is the ideal. The reality is something else. But it, it could be something else. But this is the, the ideal for a woman then is that the only time she'll ever have sex is to be impregnated. Now, for her, she's still going to work hard to have her husband desire after her. So she'll work on her beauty. She'll, um, she'll be concerned about you know, her sexual allure and her fertility so that she'll attract her husband but more, not just because, you know, not because she's so deeply in love with him and she just wants to be intimate with him, more because she wants to keep him from sleeping with everybody else. Um, she doesn't She doesn't like her husband sleeping with everything that moves, as no wife ever would. Um, and so she's going to work hard to try to keep him focused on her and keep him into their bedroom. Um, but on the other hand, for a husband, if he... Now, of course, through if there are any sexual encounters, she has to conform to his whims, whatever desires he has, she has to conform to. But what's working against that is for a husband, if he is exclusively attracted to his wife and he's effectively only desires after her, then she's got him. She's got him under control. She's subjugated him and she's won over his sexuality to her alone. He's not expressing himself and dominating everywhere. He's only dominating her. Well, then she's the one with the power in that relationship. So he can't be seen for his own honor's sake to be only dominated by, to be only having sex with her. He needs to be expressing himself and, and that being publicly known that how dominant he is wherever he goes. Otherwise, well, he's, under, you know, he's, he's under the control of his wife. Um, and that's actually working against his virtue and, and working against his manliness. So in that sort of circumstance, in that type of married arrangement, what that means is that the husband is always going to be having sex with everyone apart from his wife and sometimes with her as well. And that's perfectly fine. On the other hand, for the woman whose job it is, is to procreate and have children, what that means then is that for her, anything, any sex apart from that with her husband is adultery. Now, the concern is not with fidelity. The, the concern is not with, is she, um, you know, is she just been faithful to her husband? The concern is with having children. If her job is to have sex, to have children, if she's sleeping around with other men and she gets pregnant, 
then we don't know who the father is. And so the question of paternity, the question of control over the, we talked already about when you come into a marriage, you have a contractual arrangement as to who owns what. Well, if she's having children to other men, then that's one, it's mixing up the bloodlines, but it also means that she might be having children who inherit his property. And so the, you know, the property that's been passed down through the generations has now been split up to maybe kids that aren't necessarily his. And so we don't, we, we don't want to take that risk. We don't want to have that sort of mixing up going on. And so the way that we control that is that we control her sexuality because we don't want her to be impregnated by somebody else. And so adultery then only then applies to her. And if she is caught in adultery, the husband has an obligation to prosecute her, um, to publicly divorce her, absolutely, um, to make to remove her from the family and to make sure everyone knows that he's done that um, and bring her to trial, actually put her up into a family trial, maybe even to a public trial, and then to punish her. And the standard punishment for a woman caught in adultery was exile, exile to her to an island. Now, it never actually happened in reality, but that was what the law was in, in Roman law, to exile to her to an island to really make sure that you know to really make to ensure that other women don't do this as well because paternity is a very important issue within this context. Okay, so for the woman then sex is very restricted and any um, any form of adultery relates only to her. Coming back to him then, in that case he has total sexual liberty. He's got total sexual liberty over his wife. He can have sex with her anytime he wants, however he wants and she needs to conform to that. But apart from her, he can have sex with anyone else that he wants to as well. And this is a, this is a perfectly normal expected thing. Um, if he's, any slaves in the house are absolutely his property and he can do with them as he pleases. Now, you, if particular, as I said before, young boys are, are a particular preference for the husband. That kind of works in her favor. That's seen sort of to be as a good thing because in, in a... He, he's never going to fall in love with the slave boy for a start. He's certainly never going to marry the slave boy. But it also means that whatever attraction he has to that slave boy is going to dissipate very quickly as the boy grows up. As he becomes a man, he's not going to be attractive anymore. And so for the wife, this is a good thing because there's no temptation of him leaving her for the slave boy or for any other slave, in fact. That's just him expressing himself and and, and dominating over these slaves. And it, in a in a way, you know, and this is how, again, this is in a very male culture, um, it's sort of meant to be a good thing for her because it means that whatever he's doing to the slaves, he's not doing to her. Whatever sexual desires he might have that he's expressing with a prostitute, for example, well, better he do it to a prostitute than do it to her. Whatever sick fantasies that he might have, um, whatever dominance that he wants to express, again, better to disgrace a slave or disgrace a prostitute than to disgrace a wife, disgrace his honorable wife through that same behavior. So <laughs> again, in a very male culture, um, this is meant to be a good thing for her, the way that he, um, him doing that to them rather than doing that to her. So he has total sexual liberty. This is, this is the point. And it's not about who he sleeps with. It's not about whether it's male, female, young, old. That is of no concern whatsoever. The only concern at this point is, was he the active partner in it? Was he the dominant one? There was a, a sort of a, a joke or it was an insult that 
used to be said about Julius Caesar. And it was said behind his back, of course, no one would ever say it to his face. But the insult ran um, that Caesar is every man's woman and every woman's man. In other words, whenever he was the sexual partner with a male, he was always the woman. In other words, he's a woman. And when it it came to the women, he's every woman's man. In other words, he's got no self-control when it comes to the women. In other words, he's a woman. Because the only, um, the greatest insult you can ever lay against the man is to call him a woman. Because to be a woman is to be, well, not a man. And the man is the supreme being. So the last thing you want to be is anything other than that, which is why you don't ever want to be understood to be the passive one in the relationship because that's the role the woman plays now it doesn't sometimes it will happen sometimes you you he would be the passive one but if that's his preference then that's what makes him a woman this is the last thing you want to have so everything there's nothing is off limits for the man however there was what we might call sexual sin now, this is obviously a Christian term because we, Romans never talked about sin, but there was sex that was off limits. There was sex that was seen to be disgraceful. Um, and the word used to describe this is the word stuprum, S-T-U-P-R-U-M, stuprum. Now, the word basically refers to disgraceful behavior, but more specifically within the case of illicit sex. Now, stuprum then was, for a man, stuprum was... Sex with any free Roman woman uh, or any really any free-born Roman citizen was off-limits, especially free-born Roman women because they're always going to be married. Women are always going to be married young anyway. Um, so that's sex with another man's wife. That is adultery in that sense. And so you're actually violating a bloodline. If you have sex with somebody else's wife, you are potentially impregnating her. You're muddying up the bloodlines of that particular family. And so all of the property concerns come into play. And so that's disgraceful behavior, not because you've you know violated the other husband's trust, but rather you're threatening his lineage, his patrilineage. So that's that's where the problem lies there. So that's why it's a disgraceful behavior. Um, so you can never, um, you, 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 that's just something you would never do. But then also to have sex with another freeborn Roman is off limits because you're violating the, the freeborn status. I mean, having sex with a slave, of course, that's what slaves are there for. Or having sex with a non-citizen, that none of that matters. Those people are of no concern. They have they hold no value to us. But a freeborn Roman citizen is a very important status. And when you violate that, that's now a problem. Again, not because of the person's feelings or of their emotional state. None of that is of any concern. It's a question of their status. You're violating that person's status. And that's where it becomes a problem. So a freeborn Roman citizen is off limits. But that's fine. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Of course, that's going to happen. And it's not like you're going to be punished by being crucified for it. It's just you, it's disgraceful behavior. It's not something you want to have attached to you as having something that you've been, something you've done. But who cares? It doesn't matter because there's so many other options you have out there. The only concern, again, being are you the one who's dominant? Are you the active participant rather than the passive participant? So, what happens then if you are? The passive one in this sexual encounter, well, simple, you're a woman. That's it. You're not a man. You stopped being a man. You're now a woman. That's the insult. That's the problem. That's the disgraceful behavior 
is being seen to be a woman. So the Vir Bonus, this great powerful man that we're describing here, is concerned about being a man. That's that's what the priority is. So if you are somebody who gives yourself over to excess or timidity or you're passive, that's what a woman does. That's what characterizes a woman. You've become a woman. If you take the receptive role in in sex, you're a woman. That's what you've become. Um, if, in fact, if you have been penetrated, if you've been raped by another man, what that man has done is that he's taken away your masculinity. He's turned you into a woman. He's, he's, he's effeminized you. And, and that's a fate worse than death. That's a disgraceful thing that's happened to you. That's the last thing you want to have. Um, somebody who walks delicately, delicately, someone who wears too much perfume or wears very colorful clothing or um, curls your hair or plucks your chest hairs. You know, basically you, you're really concerned about your, you're trying to beautify yourself and your physical appearance. That's what a woman does. And that's so men don't do that. Men are men, right? Men are, you know, the, the stereotypical macho man is what we're striving for here. And so to do, to, to work against that is, well, again, that, that's what a woman does. Um, now, if you surround yourself by lots of women, lots of loose women, or, or you, you constantly live in just self-indulgence, you've got no self-control, you're a woman. A woman has no self-control. That's why she needs a man to dominate and to control her. Well, if you're living the same way, then you two are effeminate. You are, you're a woman. Um, someone who's too romantic with their wife. Well, romance, that's that's what a woman does. And so we don't be seen to be doing that. We don't want to buy our wife flowers and dating her and, you know, trying to, you know, make her feel beautiful. You don't do that because that means that she's got you under control. Um, and so even to, to want too much sex, you can be seen to be a woman because you want to have sex too much or so a man who masturbates too much. You know, you've got no sex. You've, it's one th- your physical member is your, the way that you express your manliness, right? You use your penis to demonstrate how much of a man you are. But if it controls you, then it's done the opposite effect. Conversely, you've become a woman because you've got no, so you've got no control over your sexuality. Um, you know the, the very idea of the the, the areas and the and the, the people groups that Rome have dominated and have co- have conquered, they are by default women. Why? Because they lost. They fought Rome and they lost. Rome is dominant because we've got the real men. When we when we line up for battle, we win because we're real men, and you lose because you're women. Because women lose, right? Women can't stand up against men. And so that's why Rome is so supreme. This is why Rome is so dominant because we've got the real men. Now there were within this culture and like, I guess like any culture, so there are certain, there are men who were more naturally effeminate. There were men who sought after, um, they, they wanted to be the passive recipient more than necessary, that there may be the dominant recipient. And that, and that's, that did happen. There's no real sort of record of that, but of course we we know that that was going to happen. And you know, the concern for those men, they you know they preferred to be with men and refer, and obviously to be the recipient. You have to be with another man. There were those guys who did prefer that, 
Um, but the concern wasn't that they were what we might call homosexual. That really wasn't a category so much, this that I just prefer to be with another man. That wasn't really a thing. But men who leaned that way, again, the concern wasn't homosexuality. The concern was that they were just a woman, that they had actually um, betrayed their biological masculinity and were, were acting actively acting as women. They were openly acting as women. Again, they were not being men. This is, this is the whole point. And I, I mean, I, I told you we, we, we're going to go there with this episode, but I think you get the point of what we mean here. To be a man is to be a man. And all of, in all of the stereotypical ways in which a man might be portrayed, this is the ideal for the Roman. I mean, I say there's literally a god with a great big erect penis, which is the embodiment of what it means, of what Roman masculinity is. This is the patron god of, of what a Roman male is. Now, we're moving towards the Christian setting next week and, and, and how this has been transformed within the Christian context. Maybe you're already we're sort of already going there, but I, I hope you get in the idea here of, um, of, of the sort of picture that we're trying to portray now of, um, of, of, what, of what all of this is. Now I realize that we've gone over time this week and just give me, if you give me an extra couple of minutes, because I just want to finish by talking about divorce. So we talked about marriage and particularly from the point of view of the male, and we've certainly talked about sexuality and all of this, we're going to come back to next week in the context of the Christian setting. But I want to talk quickly about divorce. It is going to be quick because there isn't really much to say. Marriage was an incredibly informal procedure. Marriage was two people agreed to live with each other in as a husband and wife, and so they were married. Simple as that. Well, divorce was just as informal. If one of the now both parties in the marriage have the ability to to be divorced, and so it was just as informal. Um, literally, you know, to be married is to consent to the marriage. Well, if you withdraw your consent, you're no longer married. It's as simple as that. Um, a wife wakes up and says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. There's nothing you can do about it. She she takes her property, whatever property she has, and off she goes. Now, the important key thing here is that if, if she does leave, the kids stay with him. The kids are his property. They were born in his house. They're his property. That's it. So he keeps the children. She takes whatever property she brought to the marriage, and that's it. The marriage is done. It's as simple as that. Now, you don't even really need any, any reasons for the divorce, there's no re legal requirement for why you can and can't be divorced, um, but your reputation requires that there are some serious grounds. You don't want to be seen to be just, you know, if your wife just up and leaves you, well, then you're not much of a man because you let her go, right? There has to be good reasons. And so if you're going to be divorced, it's because she committed adultery or she was infertile or he might just want to marry somebody else. He, he might find somebody who's got a larger dowry and that's a more benefit to him. So he's going to leave this wife and he's going to go and marry this other girl because she's got, she's, she's got more property. It could be that the father actually divorces the children. Remember I said the father has total authority over the children, including over who they marry and over who they divorce. So if he comes along and says, I don't want you married to her anymore. I want you to marry this girl over here because she's got a larger dowry. Nothing he can do about it. That that the divorce is done, and and the, the son has to go and marry this other woman, or vice versa with the girl. She 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 has to go and marry this other guy. Importantly, again, property is all that matters. Who gets what? Well, she gets her stuff, whatever she brought, and then everything else gets left behind. That's his property. 
including the children. So there's not much to say about divorce because it's just that simple. It really is that simpler procedure. And it was pretty common for these reasons. It was, it was just a very simple sort of process. This is an important point, though, which we're going to pick up on next week, because what does that mean in the Christian setting? And especially, what does that mean for modern marriage? In fact, all of this, what does this mean for modern marriage? What does this mean for modern sexuality? What does this mean for modern divorce? Based on the Bible, what are we to do with what the Bible says? And what what is the Bible saying, particularly when it comes to the context of its first century Roman world in which it was written? All right, well, as I say, we did go a little bit over time this week. Um, Next week, we're going to come back. We're going to pick up this, but we're going to look at all of this now through or look at Corinthians 7 through the lens of, of everything we talked about today. Hopefully, that's been helpful. I promise you next week won't be nearly so graphic. Um, But thanks for bearing with me and I will see you next week.